Good evening, everybody. This is nice. I didn't know. This is the first time, I guess, you know, we've had weather since I've been here, so I didn't know how if anybody was going to be able to make it tonight, so that's good, especially when you consider, I know it's going to be hard to focus tonight. The Patriots won their playoff game today, which stinks, and so it's really hard to be focused, but that's all right. We'll try our best. And in his, in his great book, um, Crying Out for Vindication, the Gospel According to Job, uh, David R. Jackson, his fourth section is called A Time to Listen. But when you turn the page of the chapter 12 and it's look at our text for tonight, which is Job 32 to 37, you're met with the words, but first the fool. When I was a boy, um, one of the things that I would get in trouble for was inserting myself into conversations between adults. My dad did not allow that. Uh, if, if an adult walked into a room and I had a chair and there were no chairs and I didn't give up my chair, I would get in trouble. But he did not allow, especially at church or when people from church would come over or uh, we would go over to their house or vice versa, I was not allowed to get involved in the conversations between adult people. And I think there were several reasons for that, but one of the very obvious reasons is that reality that mature conversation or to be able to contribute maturely to a conversation requires a certain amount of wisdom and patience and discernment or some kind of knowledge to begin with. Sometimes it's just that it's not that the younger are less important. It's that grown men are talking, you know, that phrase, so to speak. And I think my dad not only had that rule so that I wouldn't ruin serious conversations, but also I think to protect me so that I didn't look foolish, right? Nobody did that for Elihu, the young man we're going to look at tonight. One young man in particular has apparently been in the audience throughout the dialogues of Job and his friends, and he just can't sit by silently anymore. If you remember from a literary standpoint, Zophar, Job's third friend, he didn't speak a third time, signifying the frustration of the arguments, which leads very nicely into Elihu's hot-headed response. I think that's what chapters 32 to 37 are. Young Elihu just can't take it anymore, which is always a good reason to speak up, right? Just You just can't take it anymore. Nothing is going to be said in the epilogue about whether Elihu was right or wrong. Job doesn't respond to him at all. Nobody responds to him. His speech is immediately followed by the entrance, finally, of God into the story. And I think the translation there is, he's there, right? He's there. We're meant to hear him because of what God wants us to know, but he is stunningly and completely, unlike anyone else, totally ignored by everyone in the book. And there's a reason for that. His speeches are almost like comic relief, really, from a literary standpoint. There are times when you just have to laugh at what he's saying. We'll look at some of that, which is a signal to us that at the very least he's in way over his head here. Well, the three friends in Job represented the wisdom of their time and its retribution theology, which is just an old word for karma nowadays. Elihu represents the brash or uninformed young person who thinks he has all the answers. He's there from a literary standpoint to increase the frustration of Job that we feel for him and that he would have felt, but he's also to serve as a kind of summary or climax to the worst things about the theology of Job's friends. 
And I know we're looking at a lot of text tonight. We're looking at six chapters in total. The main reason that I want to look at Elihu in one sweep and not drag it out is because I don't want his argument to seem complex. He talks a lot, but it isn't. It isn't a complex argument. It isn't even an original or a new argument. It does not require a lot of time to consider, especially in light of what the book has already made clear. Elihu's speeches are a bloated version of what we've already heard. The young man does not advance the dialogue at all. He claims to have something new to say, and he says nothing new. He has the same old theology of Job's three older friends, right? Job suffers because he sinned. That's it. That's what he's going to ultimately say. And by ignoring him, God is putting him in his place in the book of Job. And so at the end of Elihu's speech, human wisdom has finally ran out. It's done. It will be time for God to take the stage. But as that book says, first the fool. But before we start, let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. Lord, I thank you for how every text bears witness to Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and King. And I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak as clearly as possible tonight so that nothing is confusing or harmful. I pray, Father, that you would enable all of us to listen. I pray, Father, that you would watch over our church this week. Everyone that is able to be here tonight, everyone that couldn't make it tonight, would you please keep everyone safe in the days to come and be with us tonight, Father, I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to walk through this section a chapter at a time. Okay, We'll trace the focus of Elihu's argument. We'll evaluate it as we go. And then we'll consider what I think is the most important implication here, although there are many things we could talk about in this section. There's a very serious potential danger to believing that you have wisdom in your youth. All right, And I don't... I know we don't have a lot of young people here tonight, so if I address them directly, they're all going to feel really weird because they're all sitting right over there in one close little section. I don't want to put them on the spot. That, that doesn't mean that young people are stupid. That isn't what the Bible is saying. That isn't what the text is saying tonight. But wisdom is something tied specifically to Jesus, not to knowledge. So young people can have a ton of knowledge. Old people can have a ton of knowledge. That's not what makes for wisdom. I don't think Scripture teaches that young people by default are, are automatically dumber than older people. I think Scripture teaches that foolishness is common to human beings, period. It's just what we see here, and part of what the text is trying to do tonight is show us that foolishness manifests itself differently among the youth, often, than it does among the aged. Elihu is all that's bad about the passion of youth. That need to be heard. I have to be heard. I have a voice. I have to be listened to. The belief that we can see it and everyone else is blind to it, that tends to be unique to you. So if you're young tonight and you're listening, don't be mad at me. Be mad at Elihu. It's his fault. It's not my fault. All right? (laughs) But also, let me give a word of caution to the older ones among us tonight, which I think includes me now. There are six chapters in Job dedicated to the foolishness of the young. Okay, six chapters. Those allegedly older in wisdom have almost the rest of the entire book dedicated to them. So the older ones, they're the ones that are actually on the hook in chapter 42. It's almost as if God gives Elihu a pass, especially considering the sometimes crazy nature of what the young man was saying. 
The young man is even here in the first place precisely because the older, who should have been wiser, have utterly failed to speak wisdom. This is is important. Older people tend uh, to bemoan younger people for thinking they know everything. Right? That's that's almost a cliche. Well, young people think they know everything. Yeah, but have you ever tried to convince an older person that something they think is right is wrong? Have you ever tried to convince an older person that some belief they have or opinion they have is incorrect? It's virtually impossible. So everybody does that. It, nobody thinks they don't know everything. Everybody thinks they know everything. It's just a question of how it manifests itself. And being in church where we should be the first to question our own self-confidence doesn't make that truism any better. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it's even worse. So if we're honest, the Scripture stands over all of us tonight, regardless of age, and we need to submit ourselves, all of us, to the Word of our Lord. So I also would say, if, if I sound too harsh on Elihu at times, uh, which, which it could come across that way, I want you to know that's because I see more of myself in this young man than I care to admit. Um, I, I, this text makes me think, as, as I read it, it really makes me think of my first days I hope I'm not like this anymore, but my first days as a pastor uh, and how I was as a preacher and a minister and the shame and the guilt from that are sometimes more than I can bear. And when I read Elihu, I just think, man, I I know what it is like to say things like that. And I look back on things that I said or thought as a pastor and I just think, you know, so that's 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 frustrating. So I'm not any better than this young man. The point tonight is not to belittle him, but we have to respect the word, and we have to go after what he's saying here because it's dangerous. So let me begin in chapter 32, verse 1. I'm going to read 32, 1 to 33, 33. I'll go as quickly as I can. It's not going to take, I think, as long as it sounds. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Remember that. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Should have stopped right there. (laughs) But... It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. Oh, great. Right. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. It's getting worse, right? We should read that and we should say, oh, fantastic, that's what we need. We need another opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. We're going to look at that in a minute. That's funny. Okay? 
I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, which on the contrary, Elihu, you're great at it. I do not know how to flatter, else my Maker would soon take me away. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me, God counts me, as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn men aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit. Everybody gets three chances that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Now, we know from going through this book for a few months now that all of these issues have been exhausted. And there's been no resolution. It's very tense by the time Elihu comes on stage. So... Uh, His words fall on us as I think they're meant to. Honestly, it's a literary work with the full force of comic relief. They really do. Uh, We're going to find ourselves saying throughout the discourse, maybe you've already experienced that, are you serious? Did he really just say what I think he said? He's, He's the quintessential young fool. He really is. Every facet of human wisdom is presented to us in Job and then dissected. So in some sense, Elihu actually serves to restore Job's dignity before God addresses him in the very next chapter to help us remember that the men who have been talking to Job this whole time are just fools. They're not correct about him because God is going to strip Job down. I think Elihu is here to help us remember who Job actually is, lest we think any of us are better than him. But that being said about Elihu, we do need to extend some sympathy to him. I mean, imagine if... We are exhausted and dissatisfied. Elihu had been sitting there literally the entire time all these things had been said. And he's hoped that the three wise elders of this social circle would close the deal, get Job to admit his sin, and none of them could do it. 
Elihu had a lot of hope in the older men in the community. He was quiet to begin with. He let them speak, and they let him down. He's introduced to us in 1 through 5 of chapter 32. Four times we're told right off the bat that he's angry. All right, He's angry at Job for his persistent claim that he is righteous. He's angry at the three friends for failing to win the argument, especially when apparently from Elihu's, it's, it's so obvious what the answer is. It's so obvious how to solve this thing to Elihu. So anger is the primary motivation for his speech. Nothing self-justifies us for saying whatever we want to say like being angry. Right? So we, the author is telling us right away, look, this young man is mad and that's why he's talking. These are opinions that result from anger, which, which are not good. 32.10, let me also declare my opinion. And he's convinced himself that he's God's avenging angel here to rescue these fools from their error. And, and I, he's not an evil young man. He does mean well to some degree. And he does say true things, but he's just hilariously arrogant. He must speak. That's his justification, his own sense of wanting to say something, which is always dangerous. And that obligation that we feel that, like, I have to speak up, I have to say something. Do you? Do we? Do we have to say something when we feel like we have to say something? <coughs> the kid spends almost a quarter of his time, literally, telling us why we should listen to him, right? Because he can do what everyone else here has failed to do. Elihu is a windbag in verses 19 through 22, but literally, all right? He admits that that's what he is. He tells you that's what he is, and he's proud of it. He's just bursting with things to say. My belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst in verse 19. That's not... That's not pleasant. That's gross. Okay? I know, I know it's funny, but he's literally saying, the wind in my belly is under pressure, and I'm going to blow, and it's going to come out of my mouth. That's what he's saying. He, he tells us that in verse 20. I'm thankful for the euphemism in Hebrew here, so that it's not really, it's, it's appropriate to share in church, but he's saying, I have a belly full of gas, and it's going to come out of my mouth. There's no break in his speaking. The first verses of 34, 35, and 36 are showing us that he doesn't even take a breath. He doesn't stop. But he actually starts with a kind of apology for entering the conversation at all. Again, he has deferred to them. He wants to be respectful, but he forgets that. I I think he probably genuinely meant to be at the beginning. It seems that way. But the more we talk, the less we think clearly. But he actually starts with... Um, a kind of apology to them. His response to Job here, though, in chapter 33, verses 9 through 11, is based mainly on quotations of what Job has previously said. So he's a very um, smart arguer. So he's saying, you know what, I'm going to actually, I'm going to, unlike the other guys who just bowled over Job, for the most part, Elihu says, I'm going to quote you, and then I'm going to say why that was wrong, what you said was wrong. There are statements that Elihu says Job had made, that Job had made in the book that match verses 10 through 11 and 33. That's true. However, Job did not say what Elihu said Job said in verse 9. So Elihu is right. Job has said that God is acting towards him as an enemy. He says that in 1324, 16.9, 19.11. In verse 11, Elihu is quoting Job from 13.27, but... 
the words of verse 9 are not words Job has spoken. He did not ever say, he, he does claim that he is blameless, but he's talking about what the friends accuse him of. It's very specific. Elihu is changing that. Job has not said, as Elihu quotes him here, that he is pure, without transgression, clean, and there is no iniquity in him. So he's not quoting Job correctly in total. He mixes truth with his own ideas. He's accusing Job of claiming moral perfection, even though Job has never claimed that Job has never sinned. Job never said that. And once it's clear that Elihu is literally putting words in Job's mouth to prove his point in order to condemn him, and that he has the exact same answer to Job's plight that the three friends have, we know what we're looking at here. We've been reading this same stuff since chapter 4. Right? It doesn't advance the argument at all. And you could read the first part of chapter 32 and think that maybe he did have a different approach. And he did have different arguments. But it, in the very first speech you realize, right out, of the, right out of the gate, that it is more of the same. You see that in verses like 33, 29 to 30. It's just the same thing. So the heart of Elihu's theology is that the only explanation for suffering is that God is rebuking someone for their sins. That's the heart of his argument. In Elihu's mind, he's, what he's mainly angry at Job about is, is Job crying out to God for an answer. That's really the heart of what he's angry at. And in Elihu's mind, God had answered Job by punishing him, but he's too wicked to see it as God answering him. This has already been covered. right? We already know that Job is not being punished for sin. We know from the first chapter that that is not the cause of his suffering. So again, it becomes white noise. It becomes a clanging symbol. It's, it's brassy to our ears, or should be. He claims to speak wisdom, but it's false since nothing he says is ultimately relevant to the conversation. That's a major purpose of Elihu in the book of Job here, to bring together the threads of how man's wisdom is simply insufficient to answer the question of suffering, and yet we still can't keep our mouths shut. So, it, it can sound very noble, especially when you're speaking on behalf of God, allegedly, that you just have to speak. I have to say something. Well, this isn't like when Jeremiah the prophet had to speak because the truth was like fire shut up in his bones. The, the, that's something else. The, the felt need to speak does not justify speaking. Right? That, that is an exaltation of the self. Well, if you feel like you have to say something, you should say something. Says who? Where is that written? Why would that be wise, beloved? Jeremiah didn't want to speak. He had to speak. That's different. He didn't want to say anything. God had compelled him to, even against his will, to speak. You know, I set you apart from before you were born. You're going to say these things. Elihu's need to speak comes from just a burning desire to speak. Elihu wants to talk. That's a good way to self-check. Right? Do, do I want to say what I think needs to be said, or do I not want to say it? In verses 23 to 26, he does recognize Job's need for a mediator. It's just that it seems like Elihu thinks he can do that for him. That, I think that's the whole point of, of Elihu speaking up. Look, I can work this out for you. If you just listen to me, I'll bridge the gap between you and God. But Elihu doesn't have the power to bring God and Job together. No man can mediate on behalf of another man. No human being can mediate before God for another human being. 
This is Job's biggest problem throughout his book, is that, or the book that all human mediators ultimately failed. You, you see that as we go through the book. That's what all the friends are trying to do. They're trying to bridge the gap between Job and God, and they're all failing. And Elihu's failure is like the, the, the spotlight is finally shining on, it's screaming to us, do you understand that they, they can't bridge the gap? Human wisdom, human good intentions are insufficient to bridge the gap between humans and God. Which is why we should only speak God's Word when we speak to others. This is... All human mediators ultimately fail. All but one. All but one. Look at 34 now. Let's just read chapter 34. Then Elihu answered and said... You see that? We're going to see that three more, two more times after this. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. He's picking up steam. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. There it is. It's just, it's retribution theology. It's the same thing. Of a truth God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this, listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are the ways, are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. If this all sounds familiar, it's because you've heard it before about 30 times as we've read through Job. Thus knowing their works, verse 25, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following Him and had no regard for any of His ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to Him and He heard the cry of the afflicted. When He is quiet, who can condemn? When He hides His face, who can behold Him? Whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that He should not ensnare the people. For as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. The second speech... Well, the second part of the one speech focuses here on the righteous rule of God. Right? He begins by 
telling them once more that he will do what they have not done. He's going to speak words of wisdom. And then he ends up saying, and the wise people present will be able to tell the difference between my words and foolishness. In verses 7 through 9, he puts Job in the category of a hardened sinner. Job is really bad. Right? He, his words are not trustworthy. And in Elihu's view, not just his words, but his actions are wicked. So Job's whole life is wicked because Job has called God's justice into question on top of everything else. In verses 10 to 15, God rules the world with justice, though, Job. He doesn't do wrong. He doesn't act wickedly like, you know, cause someone suffering when they hadn't done anything. God is not like that, Job. God is just... God is just, so He only repays a person according to what the person has done. That's all God is in Elihu's view. It's clear to anybody with eyes that God makes sure whatever happens to a person will go along with how they live their life. This is obvious, Job. How can you not see this? So in verses 16 to 30, if Job has any true understanding at all, he should listen to Elihu, right? In verse 33, he presses him to speak up, make a decision, Job. But, you know, Elihu and the truly wise, they know in verses 34 to 37 that Job will just do what he's been doing. He's going to answer like a wicked man. He's going to add rebellion to whatever sins he's committed. He's going to rebel against Elihu's, you know, teaching about God that is correct. So if Job doesn't agree with it, he's wicked, he's rebelling. Again, Elihu is wrong. And his view of retribution is basically the exact same as the three friends, which, which again, I think we're meant to ask at some point, why did these men have to speak at all? In Job chapter 3, when Job cries out, he's not talking to them. They were just there. And from 4 on, you've had these men that apparently think, no, 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 we can't let this stand. We have to say something. None of them had to speak. Why are they speaking? Beloved, always remember, a God that brings suffering only as retribution for wrongs committed against Him must be defended by those who think they aren't in the wrong. That's how they think they'll keep from suffering. All right, so Job, listen to Elihu. Come clean and repent. The third part of the speech here in 35, the shortest part, and Elihu answered and said, there it is again. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? So he goes back and forth between quoting Job correctly and misquoting Job all through the section here. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? Why did you do it? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. You see what he's saying here? The only reason people cry out to God is because of trouble. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the devil. You see, they all echo the devil. right? We've got to call it like what it is. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? The young man is basically quoting the devil. Who calls out to God because God is just 
worthy of praise. Nobody. We only cry out because we need Him. That's the only reason people of the earth ever worship God. You see that, right? Verse 12, there they cry out, but He does not answer. He doesn't answer when people cry out in need. Because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. If that verse is true, we should go home. We should go home. Verse 14, how much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not make much note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Interesting. His focus here is on Job's claim that he is right before God, but God has mistreated him. That makes Elihu more angry than anything. Because Job is saying, God has mistreated me regardless of whether I've lived a life of sin or righteousness. He's just mistreating me. In the first few verses there, Elihu continues his approach of quoting what Job had said and then dissecting it or misquoting it or or reading into his intentions. The problem is that we know Job doesn't believe he's any more righteous than anyone else or righteous than God. And it's interesting that Elihu leaves out the part of Job's speeches which are extensive where he explores the sovereignty, the mystery of God, because Job is also trying to figure everything out. Elihu says in verses 4 through 8 that actually human actions don't affect God at all, really. And I think 35.13 is the center of Elihu's argument. And I think it's why it will be the catalyst for our focus here in just a little bit. I think that's really what Elihu is getting at. Based on Elihu's theology here, Job's desire that God would come and meet with him is absurd. To Elihu, it's absurd. Why would God ever meet with a human being, Job? Why would he ever do, why would he ever condescend and come down here and speak with us? Right? You see how anti-gospel everything is that isn't the gospel? You, I mean, it's just right in front of us. People only look to God when they're in trouble. That's precisely why God doesn't answer, Job. They aren't crying out because they and God are tight. They're crying out because they just need something and God is mighty so He can provide it for them and God sees right through it. He's so far above us. Job doesn't understand how God relates to the world, does he? In Elihu's view, he's a sinner. He's in trouble and he still thinks God is going to listen to him. But God doesn't respond to need from people that have no collateral. That's what Elihu's saying. Elihu again puts Job in the category of the wicked. Now, real quick. God does respond personally to Job. And ironically, that immediately follows Elihu's claim that he wouldn't do that in the book of Job. It's like the next thing that happens. God would never show up and talk to you. And then God shows up and talks to him. That's not there at the end by coincidence. That's meant to speak to us. That's what's going to ultimately show Elihu's argument is false. So finally, the fourth and last part of the speech in 36.1, let me read as quickly as I can here. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little while and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Now, now just listen. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Exactly. Thank you. That's exactly the response. We went from, you know, guys, I just, I don't know if I should speak up here. I've, I've tried to wait to, uh, one who is perfect in knowledge is here with you now. Everybody relax. Eli, who's going to take care of it, right? That's, that's where we are. 
Behold, verse 5, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instructions or instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. False. False. Job is the proof that this is false. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Wrong. False. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. (laughs) Don't take grace for granted, Job. It's always the cry of the self-righteous legalist. Always. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress, verse 19, or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Right? You've chosen to keep sinning instead of take your licks. That's what he's saying. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done no wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Amen. And here in a minute, God's going to show up in the thunder. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow he says fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays His command upon them and causes the lightning of His cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? Did He say that about somebody else earlier? Yeah. You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you like Him spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to Him. We cannot draw our case because of darkness. Shall it be told Him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that He would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. 
Out of the north comes gold and splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. The irony is amazing. So Elihu just returns to the theme of God's use of suffering to discipline people. That's his basis. That's why he just waxes eloquent for a while on the majesty of God. He, he wants to remind Job of God's ways in the world in order to persuade him to seek God for reconciliation. But you have to remember, that's irrelevant. Job is not being punished by God. That's not where the separation is coming from. Job is more, more than aware of the wonders of God. You remember chapter 28, and he just, Job is more than aware of the wonders of God. And Job has sought God. He has sought God painfully. It's just that God has not responded yet. In 36, 1 through 4, Elihu asks Job to be patient and listen to him because he has something to say on God's behalf. So that's, that's his ultimate, you know, play there is that, look, I speak for God. So you have to listen to me. Don't you love it that thousands of years have not changed that manipulative strategy? No, 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 I'm, I'm, God's always telling other people what you should be doing. Isn't that amazing? You know, it, it's, God has laid this on my heart. You know, I, I, it's just that now you have to help me do it. God has laid it on my heart, but you're on the hook to do it. Right? The strategy is used all the time. But Elihu also speaks in defense of God, which is the epitome of presumption, isn't it? To, to, I have to defend God. From what? Like, from what? God, these guys are really going to get you if, if I don't step in the way and defend you. Thank you, Elihu. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Like, if I tried to defend my dad when I was five in a fight, it would be cute, but it would be sad, right? That, see, Elihu is saying his knowledge doesn't come from himself. It comes from an outside source. It comes from God. That's manipulation in its truest form. Remember this morning. Remember the text. Nobody has the right to say that. Nobody has the right to say, you have to listen to me because God told me this. That has no authority. That's why we have the Bible. If somebody ever says that to you, say, okay, well, let's go to the Bible and see if the Bible confirms it. And if it doesn't... so. But I want you to listen to the final nail in the coffin of the fact that Elihu displays the mistakes of a fool in extreme form. In a speech where he accuses Job of putting himself up as better than God, more or less, Elihu says 36.4. Let's go back there and just watch that happen again. Let's rewind it, push play, and make sure that's what we saw. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. That's what Elihu ascribed to God in chapter 37, verse 16. He's lost his mind. He, he doesn't even see it. That the one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. That's me. It's God, but it's also me. Worldly wisdom and talk and speculation will end with us, maybe not that blatantly, deifying ourselves. It will. And we don't even realize it. There's something about our own talk, the sound of our own voice, that makes us eventually forget there's only one who is perfect in knowledge, and it isn't us. That's what we see happen between 36 and 37. He forgot, I shouldn't quote myself as being something that I'm going to say God is, 
but he can't see that. Rather than quoting Job this time in verses 1 through 5, he just solidifies this doctrine of retribution in 7 through 15. Then he applies it to Job in 16 through 21. Although God is powerful, he doesn't despise anyone, which means God treats everyone fairly unless you mess up. That's how the universe is set up. And it's all summed up in 36.6. Here it is. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. Everyone only gets what they deserve. There's no other way to see it. This is the core of what humans believe about God if they admit there's a God at all. In our reliance on our own glorious selves, on our own voices, we've decided that everyone gets what they deserve. That's the doctrine that holds the universe together. So do good or die. The book of Job is the lab where that hypothesis is tested, proven wrong, and cries out for something better. Elihu warns Job in verses 16 through 21, God has placed him in a situation, punishment for his sin, where it's vital that he responds in the right way. Job is experiencing the judgment that falls on all the wicked on all the ones that don't do well enough in verse 17. So he better be careful in verses 18 through 21 how he responds to Elihu's words. Instead of longing for death, Job, you should try to figure out what God is trying to teach you in your suffering. All attempts to find out why reveal our honest belief that God really is just transactional. Right? We're all Job's friends at heart. We all are. And speaking of Job, Job has chosen to sin rather than accept the discipline of God's justice and learn his lesson. Right? It doesn't matter if Elihu meant well, if Elihu is wrong about who God is. The good intentions of fools don't help anybody. Verses 22 to 25 are the way Job should respond. And it sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? So pure and religious and pious I mean, this young man really has some potential. No, God is not honored by the flattery of fools that don't know him. Elihu just uses all this here, all this grand language to prove his theory that, look, God is too high above the world for any human to know him for real anyway. So, Job, what are you asking for? Right? He questions the appropriateness of a human being addressing the way that Job has. He wants to put Job in his place for being so pathetic. God doesn't regard anyone who is wise in their own conceit, Job. A mirror would have helped a ton in Job. Apparently nobody had one. So here is Elihu's final report. Job is suffering because of his wickedness. He has to respond in the right way and be restored through repentance for his sins. So basically Elihu has said the same thing they've all said, and he's been no help at all. One positive thing Elihu does is summarize the main arguments Job had made so that we remember them before God appears in chapter 38. But ultimately, as the last representative of human wisdom in the book, Elihu gives the final demonstration of the utter failure and inability of human wisdom in dealing with Job's or anyone else's suffering. At best, Elihu says some things that are true, they're just not relevant to Job. But at worst... Elihu's theology will prove Satan right if Job buys it. If you want things to go well, Job, you have to straighten up and fly right. Job walks in the way of sinners precisely because he thinks he has nothing to gain 
by doing his best to be righteous. It's not necessarily the problem of youth that they tend to want to change the world. Right? That's, that's a good thing. Our world needs changing. Something's wrong with it. But Elihu's problem, and basically everyone's problem, is that we think the way to make everything better is just to be really good people. God helps those who help themselves. That's why. Right? That's ultimately why Elihu proves to be the same as the three friends. He rejects grace. If we reject grace, it's, it's like when we, I think we started talking about at the beginning of Job, rejecting grace, the reality of grace, the gospel, from the outset, is like leaving on a trip to go from one side of the country to another and starting off 20 yards off in the right direction. Just that far off in the beginning. Because by the time you get 100 miles, now you're, what, the exponential math, I don't even know it. I don't know math. You see, you start off that wrong at the beginning, and by the end you'll be way wrong, way wrong. That's what it is when it comes to God and grace and all of our understanding about Him. That's what we see here. What is the default position of Elihu? How is the universe set up? Remember, to him, everyone only gets what they deserve. Well, in a universe like that, the only possible path to life is to not do anything worthy of punishment. Well, what that does, it actually doesn't clean up the world at all. What it does is it makes you frantic about your own goodness, and it makes you the sheriff of everyone else's too. So we all become little Pharisees, little self-righteous zealots. That's what we become. There's no place for grace in that mother. You do good or die. You do good or you ruin it for everybody. Beloved, do you, do you see it? If, if, if there are exceptions to the rule then, it can't be absolute. If there are exceptions to the rule that only the bad suffer, then that can't be the rule that runs the universe. It can't be correct, right? That's what Job is. That's what Job is. God is showing you, see, it's not as cut and dry as you think. That's what Job is showing us. But then Job is not the final answer, is he? He's not the final answer because Job was also a sinner. And again, he hadn't done anything that brought on this suffering, but Job was not... Uh, he comes from Adam. He's, he has a sin nature. He had sinned in his life. So if there was one who really was perfect, see, what Job is, is magnifying the truth of the gospel. You know, you, you, cause you could say, well, you know, technically speaking, he wasn't innocent. What if there was one who was and he still suffered? What if there was one uh, who really was perfect and it didn't go well for him? then our best is never going to be good enough. It's never going to answer all the questions. It's never going to solve all the problems. Elihu has to deny, then, that God would hear the empty cries of human beings who haven't done anything for him, but just need something from him. He has to deny that. So I don't think it's any coincidence in this book that once the core of the arguments has been revealed, that being that, God's not going to listen to you, Job. You're in need. The only people God listens to are those that have earned a hearing. I don't think it's any coincidence that once that has been made clear, God shows up. Because the only hope of mankind, our only hope tonight, beloved, is that God answers our cries without determining whether or not we're worthy of His ear. That's our only hope. In fact, God knows we're not worthy of His ear. 
and he bends down to us anyway. And that is the gospel. If the book of Job is pushing us to understand anything, it's not why we suffer or how we get out of it primarily. Notice the book doesn't ever tell us that. It's that we're going to need a mediator to make sense of anything. Most of all, how we get salvation. And nobody can mediate. Nobody can make sense. Human beings are not going to default to grace. We're too corrupted. We're too foolish. The fall did not send us to the ICU. The fall sent us to the cemetery. We don't need tweaked. We need resurrected. Which means the only one that can mediate, the only one that can make sense of anything, is one that knows how you get out of the grave. Right? Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't try to manipulate us. Jesus doesn't try to sell something that doesn't really work. Jesus is the only one in the universe telling us the truth about everything. God is not merely transactional, as Job's opponents want us so desperately to believe. We have no chance of appeasing Him. That's not how He works. He doesn't need appeased. He's not petty. He's not Zeus. Right? He, he doesn't just need appeased. God doesn't take payments. And if that's the case, we're in more trouble than we can possibly imagine. So how can we be made right with God? That's what the whole book has been trying to figure out. Jesus is the only one that tells us the truth to that question. Well, you have to run and hide inside of me. That's how you're going to be made right with God. Forget trying to be good. Forget trying to do the best that you can. My Father can't be bribed. He's actually holy. So holiness is all He'll accept. Well, that's what I am, says Jesus. Come to me. Confess your sins. Believe this. Throw it all on me. I'll make you righteous. I'll finish it. Just run. Run to me. So do we need people in the world who are young or old, who are full of zeal? Yes. But we need people zealous for the gospel of grace. Zeal for the God who does hear empty cries. Because that's all any of us got. Elihu's failure to speak wisdom to Job is the culmination of the book's revelation that humans not only lack the wisdom to answer the deepest questions of our lives, but also lack the wisdom to understand our greatest need, which is salvation proving in his own unique way that our only hope is for God to provide a perfect mediator for us. Job's recognition of his need for a mediator might be the lesson to take from this book. I need a mediator. I need a mediator. We need Jesus for everything, and nothing is going to change that. In fact, the suffering of this world is only going to heighten our desperation because it's not going to stop. There's only one mediator that works. Come to Him. Rest in Him. I'm going to be down front as June comes and we sing one last song. If any of you need to come and pray tonight, for any reason at all, I'll be here. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You for salvation. We praise You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, tonight. Lord, I pray now that You would speak deeply to our souls and Help us understand what we need to about your Son, about grace, Father, that we might be able to think clearly 
in a world filled with trouble. God, I ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.